Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be here this morning to open God's Word together. We're continuing in our Luke series, and over the last few weeks, we've really been in the last week of Jesus' life. And now, tonight, as we approach our text, we're going to be predominantly just in the last night of Jesus' life. Now, one challenge that often comes up to the Christian faith is the idea of God as a judge. The idea of God as judging the world, judging us. There's certain aspects of God that might be more immediately easy to talk about, especially in our culture. It would be easy to say, you know, God is loving. Even if someone doesn't really believe in God, there's not much offense in the idea that God's loving. To say God is kind, again, that's something that we'd say, oh, we want God to be kind. God is patient. Maybe I don't like being patient, or I don't like waiting, but I at least want my God to be patient. But when we begin to talk about the idea of God as a just judge, sometimes that's something that for us or for others, can, can people can say, hold on, wait a minute. What does that really mean? Do we want a God who's judge, who would judge us, who would judge the world, who would judge evil, and who we would stand before? There can be offense taken about that. It can seem harsh or unnecessary. But at the same time, we also long for salvation, And I think that even people who don't believe in God long for salvation, though they may not use that terminology. We we long for things to be made right in our world. We long for the utopia. We we long for hope, for healing. We long for personal relationships to be healed. We, We long for our physical bodies, our ailments, our challenges to be healed. Depression, despair, mental conditions. We we long for peace in our world. We long for the end of tyranny. We long for the end of oppression. We, we long for human rights to be respected. We, we want things to be made right. And many of the best efforts in our world are, are geared towards this, towards education, towards healing, towards restoration, towards seeing uh, human rights respected and people cared for, seeing mental health and all these things, this human flourishing. We're geared towards that. We look for that. We long for this salvation. But here's the problem. The problem is you actually can't have salvation without judgment. You can't have salvation without judgment. Because when you have a salvation, it's being delivered, being brought from something, some evil, some hardship that must be truly dealt with. And so let's just think about a few practical examples of this. Say you want to save your fridge from just descending into chaos. And so you go into your fridge, and what do you do? You judge what's good in here and what's bad. What do I keep and what do I get rid of? This jar of mayo that I opened four years ago, (laughs) left out on the counter for a week and put back in, I don't think mayo is supposed to be that color. So you say, I'm going to throw that out. When's the last time we even had Jimmy John's? You know, you you look through your fridge, you figure out what is is good and what is corrupting, what's going to ruin the whole thing. And so you purge the fridge from what is evil, from what is no longer needed, what's unnecessary, so that you can save it and keep it. Maybe a more personal example would be something like cancer. When someone goes through cancer and through treatment, whether it be radiation or chemotherapy, there's a sense of discerning and judging what is the problem, what is disastrous, what is dangerous. And there's a targeted effort to deal with that so that the person's life would be saved through it. And so it's suffering and loss and hardship, but in the midst of that, there's a desire, a seeking of salvation. How do we 
end up with a just society? Well, you need to purge and judge and deal with injustice. Now, here's why this is all important. Because we're coming to a meal tonight where we're going to be looking at communion, or you could call it the Lord's Supper. And in this meal, it is a meal that symbolizes the greatest act of salvation for God's people. When we take the body and the blood of Jesus, symbolized through the bread and the wine, but it's also a meal that shows us that that salvation actually comes at a great cost. And there's a judgment of our sins that is done in this meal, but it's one that is performed by God in his mercy for us at a cost to himself. So you have salvation in the meal of communion, which we take each month at the beginning of the month as a church. The next time we'll take it together is Good Friday. So there's a salvation that we see, but we also see that the salvation came through an act of judgment, through Jesus and his sacrifice. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at this meal of communion, which occurs during the last night of Jesus' life. And so if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Luke 22. Luke 22, and that's where we're going to begin this story. Our scene opens up for us in verses 1 to 2. And this is the context, the scene this comes in. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders at this point, is, it's, it's at the tipping point. Things are going to quickly move now. And so it's the last moments, those last days where things have reached a boiling point and they are seeking to put him to death. And in verses three to six, which we won't read right now, we see that Satan actually enters into Judas. And we don't have time to talk much about that now, but Satan enters into Judas and Judas plans and goes and makes a plan to betray Jesus in the absence of a crowd because they fear the people. And so Jesus is going to be betrayed, but before he's betrayed, what we're going to see is one final meal that he so deeply desires to share with his apostles before he suffers. Now, it also tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And so here at this time is a time of religious significance for the Jews because they're getting ready to celebrate their Passover, which in the history of Israel is this tremendously significant meal because what the Passover celebrates and remembers is the time when the Israelites were once slaves in Egypt. It's been about 1,500 or 1,250 years since this happened. We'll say 1,500 years since they were freed through this exodus. And 1,500 years ago, they were slaves in Egypt. Their enemy was ruling over them, and God raised up Moses, who was going to free the people. And God chose his signs and plagues after plagues, which are these great demonstrations of his power and his judgment. And time after time, after a sign is given, Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And the answer, as you all know, is no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so now there's been ten or nine of these plagues, and we come to the 10th plague, which is the plague of the firstborn. And what's going to happen in this plague, in the history of Israel, is that God was going to go throughout Egypt and the firstborn of every person, every, every family, and of every animal was going to be struck down in this great act of judgment. And the warning is given, 
but it's not heated. And so God tells Moses and the people, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come in judgment, but here's what I want you to do. When I come in judgment, I want you to take a Passover lamb. You, you take this lamb, take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, so a good, a healthy lamb. And what you're going to do is you're going to sacrifice that lamb, and you're going to take the blood of the lamb, and you put it on your doorposts and on the lintel over the door. You put it around your door. And when I pass through the land, when I see the blood on your doorpost, I will pass over you in judgment. And then they were to eat this lamb roasted with their staff in hand, sandals on their feet, and their belts fastened because they're ready to book it out of Egypt. They're ready to flee. They're ready to go. And so God comes in this great act of judgment. There's judgment in the land, but this is also the act of their salvation, and they are brought out. And this meal was commanded to be remembered year after year and generation after generation. So by the time that Jesus is here eating this meal with his apostles, it's been 1,500 years of tradition and history where year after year after year after year, they remember God's great act of deliverance. And it's on this night that Jesus' last meal with his apostles sits. The last night of his life and this great, significant meal in their history. And in verses 14 to 15, we see after Jesus has prepared the Passover, he sent two of, his, two of his disciples to go and prepare this Passover meal. He says to them this in verses 14 to 15. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired. His life is leading up to this moment. The history of Israel is leading up to this moment. And now he says, I've earnestly desired. And the, the language that he uses, it's, it's like two forms of the word desire. So w- one person said it could almost be something like, with desire, I have desired. It's like he's doubling down on his desire. This meal is so significant and so important that he wants to be with them eating and sharing this meal together. And so what we're going to ask this morning is, what is so significant to Jesus about this Passover meal that he says, with desire, I've desired, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I think one of the first things that we see that's significant about this meal is that it's a meal of fellowship, that Jesus actually longs for fellowship with his people. In verses 16 to 18, We read this. Right after Jesus Jesus has said that this is his desire to eat the meal with him before he suffers, he says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is longing for this meal with his disciples. But he's also looking forward to another meal that he's going to share with them. He said, I'm going to share this meal with you now. And I've longed and desired this fellowship. But I'm not going to eat this meal with you again until my kingdom comes. Until I, I return and make all things new. Until my kingdom comes, I will not eat and drink this meal with you again. 
And so we see at the heart of this meal is God dwelling with his people. I think we get a glimpse actually in this story of the entire story of Scripture. Because what is the story of Scripture? It's God dwelling with us. We see this in the garden. God creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them, and he lives and he dwells with them in the garden. But soon enough, they rebel against him, and they're kicked out of the garden. But what does God then do? He pursues his people. And we see this running throughout the entire story of Scripture, that God is continuing to seek after a rebellious people. He calls them out. He brings them out of Egypt. He calls them to be his own. He dwells among them in a temple, in a tabernacle. And then he ultimately dwells among us in his own son, Jesus Christ, who's Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus, who is God with us. And he's here dining and feasting with his people. And he's, he's anticipating and looking forward to the day when he will be with them in his kingdom. And I think something astounding to consider is this. What Jesus is looking forward to is something that has not yet happened. So Jesus is looking forward to, and he's anticipating this time when he'll be with his people in his kingdom. But even as we sit now, where is Jesus? He's raised bodily and waiting for the time when he will return and he will dwell with his people. And we get, we get an image of what's to come. Jesus tells us about feasting with them in the kingdom. We, we see in Revelation 19 as well, the marriage supper of the bride and the lamb. And there's this image given throughout scripture that the relationship between God and his people is like a marriage. You may have heard that be, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, but it ends with the marriage of Christ and his church. And, and what we're looking for, what Jesus is looking for, is the time when he will come and he will take his people like a bride to be with him. And this image is used throughout scripture to describe the relationship that God has with his people. And where Jesus is now is he's anticipating and longing still for what's to come with fellowship with his people. I think an image you could think about is a young couple who's looking forward to getting married. They're longing for the day when their lives are joined together, where they become one. And there's an excitement, there's an eagerness that no longer are we two, but we, we become one. And really, that's just a glimpse, a taste, an insight into the longing that Jesus has to be with his people. And I think what we see in communion is, is the deep desire and love that Jesus has for his people. Not just that he dwells among them, but he dwells among them at such a great cost to himself. That he is the one who will be sacrificed. He is the one who will give up his life so that he might be with his people. And it may actually be something that we can overlook. We, we may not think of ourselves as people that God actually desires to be with. We may have struggled with shame, broken relationships. There may be other people in our life who are followers of Jesus, but we, we have a hard time imagining desiring to be with them. And yet here's the startling thing, that Jesus actually desires to be with us. He longs for fellowship with his people. And at the very heart of communion is the truth that God loves us. And he's willing to pay the ultimate cost to be with his people. And so this meal is significant because Jesus desires fellowship with his people. And this is a meal of fellowship. The second real reason this meal is significant is because Jesus is at the center of the meal. 
Now just think about this for a moment. If you're one of his disciples, you've been eating this meal year after year after year after year. And now Jesus is going to do something quite astounding, and that's that he's going to put himself at the center of this meal. And he's going to say, this meal is ultimately actually about me. Verses 19 to 20 say this, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, if you were talking about and capturing a Passover meal, what would you expect to talk about in the meal? I I think you would probably talk about the lamb, right? I mean, this is the center of the meal. You talk about what is it like to eat the lamb. And yet, what we notice here is that Luke doesn't highlight the lamb for us. He doesn't highlight that aspect of the meal. What do we see in this meal What are they eating? It's not lamb, but metaphorically speaking, it's Christ. It's the bread and the wine, his body and blood, which is at the center of this meal. So once again, God is going to save his people, but it's not through a one-year-old lamb without blemish, but it's through Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God without blemish, spot, or stain. Jesus is at the center of this meal that has been going on for 1,500 years. He's saying, do you see what this is actually pointing to? The salvation that God delivers for his people ultimately is coming through me. Those lambs that were sacrificed year after year after year after year, they were all anticipating what I am about to do to save my people. But Jesus doesn't just save his people from Egypt. He saves his people from their ultimate enemy, which is sin and death itself. Jesus has come to save his people, and the first exodus was just a foretaste, a foreshadow of this greater ministry that he is about to do. I mean, consider this for a moment. We have festivals in our culture that celebrate our becoming a nation. You think about 246 years that we've existed as a nation. And of course, one of our great festivals and celebration is the Coney Island hot dog eating competition, (laughs) where we remember our independence and our freedom. But 246 years and 1,500 years. 1,500 years is how long it had been since they had been saved. And the significance of this meal as they come back over and over, not just the founding of a nation, but truly this nation which has been set apart and called by God to be his people, the people of Israel, And here they are in this meal, and Jesus is placing himself at the very center of this meal. Just as they had eaten the lamb on the eve of their salvation from Egypt, Jesus here is the lamb of God whom they are eating on the eve of their salvation as he is about to go to the cross and accomplish their ultimate deliverance, to bring them from sin and death into God. And so in the first exodus, the people were passed over in judgment when they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the lintels and the doorposts of their home. And this is what the story means for us, that in the ultimate judgment, the way that we are passed over in judgment is when the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, is on the lintels and doorposts of our hearts. We've trusted 
in Jesus. When God comes in his ultimate judgment, what he sees on us is the work of Jesus which secures us so that we might be saved through judgment into him. Now again, we said that judgment can be something that we push back on because it can seem harsh or a challenge, but, but consider this story for a moment. What's actually upsetting or, or startling in this story? Is, is it upsetting the idea that God would judge me or that God would judge you? Or is the astounding thing that somehow Jesus would be the one who is judged for our sins? And yet what we see in this story is that Jesus willingly does this. He says, this is my body. This is given for you. This is my blood. It is poured out for you. This is Jesus giving up his very life for the salvation of his people. And he does it willingly. He, he desires fellowship with his people, like we said. And what is the cost? It's himself. It's his own life. If we want to know the extent of Jesus' love for his people, we look at the sacrifice that he's given. It's a self-giving love. It's one thing to host someone for a meal. It's another thing to host someone for a week. It's another thing to host someone forever and to call them to be with you. See, what is Jesus doing? He's securing forever the salvation of his people by his death. He's saying this story that you've read over and over and over and over again, it was all leading up to me. And he is here to save his people. So this meal is significant because we see in it Jesus' desire to be with his people. We see it's also a meal that he's actually at the center of in the history of God's salvation. And finally, this meal is significant because Jesus is establishing something new in this meal. In verse 20, when Jesus talks about his blood, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's symbolized by the wine. Now, the term new covenant really pushes us back to a time in Israel's history where they were in exile. They were not at home. That They had sinned and rebelled against God, and so they were out of their home, they were out of their land, and they were longing for restoration. And that's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And Jesus is saying that the promises that you see in this text, I came, and I'm giving up my life. I'm pouring out my blood so that these promises for God's people would come about. And this is what Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34 says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to, to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When Jesus said, this, this cup is the new covenant poured on my blood, he's saying, I have come to fulfill these promises. What was promised to you hundreds of years ago is going to come about because of what I'm about to do. And on the eve of his death, he gives this cup 
as a symbol of what he is about to do, what he is about to establish. And so what does this new covenant mean for us? We're going to look at just three, three small things that it means for us. The first thing is it means the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Verse 34, we're told, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now, there's a difference between forgetting something and choosing not to remember. Now, God cannot forget. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows all things. He cannot forget. But God can choose to not remember. We might forget. You might forget your keys. You might forget directions. Or maybe something worse happens to you, and, and you forget your phone. But we forget. God cannot forget. He will never forget. But he may choose not to remember. What he says is, I will remember their sins no more. I will forgive their iniquity. I will deal with the sins of my people so that it will not come up in judgment against them. When I come to them, and I see upon them the blood of Jesus. When I see they have put their faith in Jesus and trusted in him, and they are marked and defined by his life and sacrifice, I will not bring their sins to remembrance because I will remember the work of Jesus on their behalf. And this is the confidence that we have before God, that we know he keeps his word, and that he remembers his promises which means for us that he can choose to not remember our sins because he has dealt with them. So it means the forgiveness of sins. It also means that God's law is written on our hearts. It's an internal transformation. Verse 32, we're told about this issue, that the people kept turning away from God. So God's law, his old covenant, had an issue. And that's when he delivered his people from slavery, they kept rebelling against him. And so the problem with God's law is not his law. His law is good and righteous and holy. But the problem with God's law was us, that we kept turning away from him. So here's what he says. These, this law that I gave you that I wrote on tablets of stone, you wouldn't listen to. And so what am I going to do? In verse 33, I will put them, my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Not on tablets of stone, but on the very heart of his people. He says, I'm going to transform my people from rebellious people who love other things to transform them from the heart to know and to love me. And Jesus is saying that on the cross, when his blood is poured out, what he is purchasing for us is our forgiveness of sins, but also a transformed heart that relates to God now fundamentally differently. Not only are we delivered from sin and death and its punishment, but we're also delivered from the power of sin to rule over us. And it can be so easy to think about following God as a burden. We, we think about the expectations of what it means to follow and walk with God. We can think of his commands of re, as restrictive at times. But I think that's just part of the original lie that we've been told as humanity, that God's not for our good. When, when the truth is this, that God's laws and his commands are for our good. They're they're restrictive in the best possible sense to bring us life. And they're fundamentally not a burden, but actually a blessing. A blessing that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. That we would know and love and glorify God with our lives. That's why Jesus came. 
to bring us back into relationship with God and freedom from sin. So the third thing this means for us then is restored relationship with God, not just the forgiveness of sins and God's law written on our heart, but restored relationship. Verse 33 says this, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the promise of God that he will be with us and we will be with him. When Jesus defined what eternal life was, when he told us what does it mean to truly live, he says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What does it mean to truly be alive? Jesus says for us, it means to know God. And the greatest gift of the gospel, the greatest gift that Jesus comes to bring about in his sacrifice on the cross is this restored relationship with God. We're having our sins forgiven and dealt with and having new hearts, new ways of being alive and relating to God. We dwell with God as his people. And this is what Jesus came to do by his sacrifice. He came to bring about something new, a new way of relating to God, a new way of understanding God's mercy and kindness and grace, a new covenant that was poured out in his blood. And we see that this is the intentional and purposeful plan of God and of Jesus. And even at the supper, we see this, that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, and yet he willingly goes forward with it. Verse 21 to 23 say this, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be, it could be who is going to do this. Next week when we pick this up again, we're going to look at the persistence of Jesus to go forward in the midst of his suffering despite his rejection, betrayal, Peter's denial of him, and all the suffering that's going to go forward. We're going to see his complete persistence. And we're also going to see his ability to restore the weak faith of his disciples as we particularly look at the story of Peter and his denial of Jesus and then eventual restoration But today what we see in this Passover meal is this. We see it's a meal of tremendous significance. This is what Jesus' whole life has led up to. And it's also what all of Israel's history, what all of human history has led up to, is this moment where God is going to save his people. Passover is a meal for us. We could also call the Lord's Supper, communion. It's a meal that looks back for us. It looks back and it remembers what God has done for us in the past. But it's also a meal that looks to the forward, to to the present, to the reality that we live in now, that we have restored relationship with God, that our sins have been dealt with, that we now dwell with God as his people and we have this reminder of his faithfulness and goodness. It's also a meal that looks forward to the hope that we have when we will be with God in person, when Christ will return and make all things new. His kingdom will come and his will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So it's a meal that looks back, forward, and is a present reminder and proclamation of the hope that we have in Jesus. And we take it together on the first Sunday of each month. Our next time actually together is going to be on Good Friday, though, right before Easter. But in this meal, it's a reminder for us of the hope and of the gospel. You see, God doesn't need reminders. 
God doesn't need reminders. He, he perfectly is able to remember his truth, his promises, our salvation, but we need to, we need to be reminded. So why does God give us communion? Why does he give us this meal? Because he condescends to our needs for reminders. And us as physical people benefit from physical reminders. It's something tangible and physical that we see and touch and taste and hold that reminds us of what God has done for his people. It assures us that our sins are truly dealt with. That though we may remember our sins, God chooses not to. Though we may remember one another's sins, God chooses not to hold those sins against us. It's a reminder for us as people who need reminders and who benefit from it. Now, several weeks ago, some of our fourth and fifth graders took communion for the first time. And Calvary Kids did a great job of preparing them and getting ready for this meal, trying to show them the significance, show them the history, and give them this understanding so that they came in prepared for the meal. But I just think about that, and I think, man, my hope for them is these fourth and fifth graders, many who had taken it for the first time, is that each time they come back to the communion meal, they just have one more glimpse and insight into the beauty of the story. They can say, God is so good. God is so gracious. God is so kind. How incredible is God that he would save us? And that's my hope for us. Whether we're 20, 30, 40, 4th and 5th grade, whether we're 80, whatever age we are, that each time that we come back to the communion meal, that it becomes sweeter and more meaningful and better and better as we understand the depths of God's grace and kindness and mercy for us. And as we look forward to the day when we'll be with him in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who remembers your promises. You're a God who chooses not to remember our sins. I just pray for people in this room who are struggling with doubts and fears and uncertainties. I pray that you would assure them of your goodness this morning, wherever they're at in their faith, Lord, that you would assure them of your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for Jesus who willingly gives up his own life. For our hunger and thirst, he offers himself. Lord, I pray that we seek nothing else but Jesus and realize that you alone will satisfy the longings and the desires of our heart, that you alone will save us and bring us ultimately to salvation. Lord, we thank you that you're gracious and kind. Pray for any unconfessed sin this morning that we would eagerly and willingly bring that forward as we're reminded of the God that you are. Pray for healing in relationships as we consider the depths and the meaning of the communion table for how it shapes us as a people. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you pour out on us so eagerly. We pray these things in Jesus' name.